I'm Mark Beckoff and I live in Boulder, Colorado. And my vision of the world would be a place where all beings, non-human and human, could live in harmony with one another and show compassion to one another and be peaceful with one another. I mean, people are going to disagree and they're going to disagree with how they handle issues that arise with non-human animals, but there's got to be peaceful solutions. And I'm really a fan of compassionate conservation in which the life of every individual matters and all the stakeholders count. So I'm not discounting humans. I actually like humans. A lot of people who work for non-human animals don't like humans. I like humans. And, I, and for me, it, it's just totally impractical to say I love animals, non-human animals, but I don't like human animals. So let's get the world going because it isn't going to work. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young. Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. A few years ago, when I was almost finished my book, The Killer Whale Who Changed the World, my publisher sent the manuscript to some amazing animal rights experts in the hopes they might say something nice about it. That's how authors get those lovely quotes on the book covers before the book gets published. One of those experts was Mark Beckoff. I was so thrilled that he liked the book, and I thanked him for his lovely comments, and we became occasional correspondents after that. My mom is a huge fan of his work on dogs. He's written several books about them, including Canine Confidential, Why Dogs Do What They Do, and Unleashing Your Dog, a field guide to giving your canine companion the best life possible. He wrote that with Jessica Pierce. Since my life is ruled by cats, I was much more familiar with his animal rights activism and his essential column in Psychology Today. And I was thrilled that he was able to make time a few weeks ago to talk about his life and work. As always, Scan is brought to you by our pod at patreon.com. So if you like what we're doing and want to hear more about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, and if you want to suggest future guests and questions we can ask them, please join our pod and sponsor us at patreon.com. We've got all sorts of perks for members, and even a dollar a month is a huge help, as we'd love to be sharing more stories more often. Right now, our Patreon funding is helping us pay some amazing students from the University of Victoria to produce the podcast and our upcoming documentary on the past, present, and future of the Southern Resident Orcas. Also, please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes where we'll be talking orcas, otters, sea lions, elephant seals, and sharks with guests from around the world. Scan is also brought to you by Orca Publishing, the publishers of my three new books about whales for younger readers, Orcas Everywhere, Orcas of the Sailor Sea, and Big Whales, Small World. That's for babies. You can find out more about the books and ebooks and audio versions on orcaseverywhere.com. And they're all available at your local bookstore, and please support your local bookstore during these crazy times. And now, Mark Beckoff talks about animal emotions, his work with Jane Goodall, and who you're eating for dinner. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. 
And, and thanks again for sharing all of our all of our stuff with the podcast. That's always amazing. Yeah, well, so much news comes in that's bad. It's good to get good news. And I try to do a balance of stuff that I send out. Um, and some people actually complain. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but they say, can you, can you send out balanced information? So I try to send out five good things to one bad thing. Um, and there are things I just don't send out because they're just too, too brutal. I just, we know they happen, but I don't, I personally don't want to look at pictures or read horrible stories. So when I get your podcasts and your information, it's a pleasure to distribute it. Thank you. Well, it's really, it's been interesting because I've been binging all of your recent interviews. And one of the things that has come up over and over again is how you try and stay positive. And that's not something I spent, I've spent a lot of time around the environmental movement in Canada. Positive is not where people usually go. So can you talk about how and why you stay positive? Well, I mean, historically, I was raised in a very positive household. And my mom was really compassionate and empathic. And my father was, and still remains, although he's no longer alive, one of the most positive, optimistic people I've ever met. Um, I mean, I go through waves. Everybody does. I think it's, it's wrong to think that everybody is positive all the time. But, but I think the resolution line for me is about 99% positive because I look for the good in what's happening, say, for non-human animals, you know, if we focus on animal protection, animal well-being. So there's a lot of good things happening, but oftentimes the bad outweighs the good or people focus more on failures rather than victories. So for, so for me, it's easier to focus on victories in, without discounting the bad stuff. Um, I'm just, I, I just am a glass half full person. <laughs> I know some people think I'm crazy, but that's just who I am. I love that. Well, because of the times turn, how are you and where are you? I was going to start with that. Oh, well, how am I? I'm fine. I mean, I'm I'm doing personally well, and most of my friends and family are doing well. Um, you'd have to be living in a cave with no communication to know that the world is in a very, very bad state, not only for you know non-humans, but for humans. So I feel that pain, and I feel that suffering, but I can generate enough energy to try to do positive things for humans and non-humans. Um, I live in Boulder, Colorado. I love living here. I've lived here for a very long time. Um, and my, my time away from predominantly working on issues of animal well-being and animal protection is I'm a, an avid cyclist. I raced bikes for years, so I still try to ride, give or take 350 to 400 kilometers a week. Wow. <laughs> and that's my, that's my cycle therapy, as my friends say. That's um, amazing. I don't have an image of Boulder, Colorado in my mind. So what is it like? Um, it's a beautiful little city. I mean, it, it, it really is. It's gorgeous. It's in the foothills of the Rocky Mountains. And right now I'm looking out to the front range that surrounds Boulder. Um, it's one of the sunniest places in the universe. 
which I think helps my optimism. You know, a lot of, when it rains around here for two days, people say they're going to move. <laughs> jo jokingly, and you go, well, where are you going to move to? <laughs> Not um, Vancouver. Since, since I'm originally from Vancouver, when it doesn't rain for two days, you sort of go, hmm, what's going on? <laughs> I know. I've, I've actually been to Vancouver a bunch, and I've been very fortunate because I think most of the time I've been there, it's been beautiful weather, sunny skies, and it's without a doubt one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Um, I'm, I'm sure it's beautiful when it rains, but, but coming from Colorado, it's really beautiful when it's blue sky and sunny. Nice. Now, so, yeah. since, I, since I am in Canada, since I just mentioned Canada, I should ask an embarrassing question. You just called out the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about why? Because I was shocked when I read on, about what they were up to on your site. Yeah, well, I was contacted by Camille Labchuk of the Animal Justice Organization. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's fantastic. And although I knew of her work, I was put in touch. So a friend, a, a mutual friend put us in touch. So I, um, I immediately called her because I like to talk to people. I'm tired of a zillion emails and texts and I'm not on Facebook and I'm not on Instagram and I don't ever want to be on those things. Um, and so we talked and she explained to me what was going on and she sent me a report that came out from the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. And so the stuff I wrote, you know, where I said, you know, that they, they don't believe non-human animals are, have, cogn have cognitive and emotional lives. It's, that's not fiction. I mean, they actually said we don't have the scientific evidence. And that was enough of a catalyst for me to sit down and write up an article for Psych Today, which has been really popular, thousands and thousands of hits. And then Camille followed up with her own um, essay that she posted on the animal justice um, website. But, but what it did to me, because people don't believe me when I say that there are still a handful of people who really believe that you know non-human animals are unfeeling and unthinking objects and i mean there could be nothing further from the truth even if you're a science or a data hound you know i mean it's just that there's nothing further from the truth so once again you know it, it's kind of, it, it followed on and it parallels a lot of the work i've been doing arguing against the war on wildlife in New Zealand, where they're just brutally murdering millions of sentient non-native animals using, you know, supposedly humane techniques, which are not like 1080 poison and trapping and snaring and shooting and all those other horrific methods. So that, I mean, that's basically how I got involved in the Ontario debacle. And it's crazy. I mean, years ago, I was actually in Toronto to give a talk and I partook um, in a, it was a demonstration and a vigil as pigs were going to a slaughterhouse there. And um, the woman who organized it was Anita, and I don't remember her last name. It always, Krancic, I think. Um, she, she was put on trial in the last year or two for giving water to pigs in transit. And it was in it was in Toronto that I came up. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't the first time I'd seen 
pigs or other animals in these death chambers, trucks going to slaughter. But it was there where I came up with my idea about instead of bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches, babe, lettuce, and tomato sandwiches. And people say, well, why do you call them babe, lettuce, and tomato sandwich? And then they go, oh, <laughs> babe was a pig. And bacon was once a sentient um, pig. Those were sorts of the things, those were sort of, those were some of the things that came to mind and heart when um, I talked to Camille. When you wrote that, you, you looked into Canada's laws around animal rights and protections, which are pretty weak. I mean, I interviewed Camille, she just had some victories on that, but where do we stand now on, where do you think we stand now in terms of rights and protections for animals? In Canada? Yeah. Um, you know, I think you're probably around where we are in the United States. I mean, I don't know all that much. Sometimes I think Canada is much more advanced on issues of social justice. And I think in some ways you are. Um, I don't, my impression, and this is totally, when I say uninformed, it's informed a bit. But my, my impression is that a lot of people in Canada who work in animal protection were shocked by that Ontario Federation of Agriculture report. You know, it wasn't like, well, these so-called food animals are sentient and they have rich and deep emotions and they're smart and we're gonna try all we can, you know, we're gonna try all we can to protect them and if you will, do least harm. I mean, this was an outright, just inane, ludicrous, one of the stupidest things I've ever read in my life to say that we don't have scientific evidence that these animals are capable of thinking and feeling. I mean, that is just pure dumbness. There's no other word for it. Um, so that kind of rocked me back thinking, really, um, maybe Canada is not that good after all, but I know you, that some um, legislation was passed protecting cetaceans. Um, and the feeling I get from people is that you are making progress, slow progress. I do work with Zoo Check every now and again, and it seems like, you know, things are happening. Now that I've embarrassed Canada, I also <laughs> wanted to ask you about something that really shocked me in some of your recent stories about who are the American scientists who declared that rats and mice aren't animals? And what are they if they're not animals? Well, it's hard to name the scientists, but no, you're raising a really good point. I mean, for people who don't know, the United States Federal Animal Welfare Act specifically was reworded to uh, define to redefine the word animals to exclude basically laboratory rats, mice, various birds and fishes and invertebrates. And people don't believe it. So when I write, I always put the quote in with the website. And so it's the people who draw up the Animal Welfare Act, the words for it, who said that these are not animals. I mean, it, you've seen it. It, I'm, I'm not making up a lie. And it's been around for a really long time. And, and only a handful, I think I know two or three people literally who have ever spoken out against it. And the reason that most people don't is they're afraid of their careers. I mean, they're afraid to say, well, of course, rats are sentient beings and mice are sentient beings and so are birds and fishes, for example. So that's why I, I, I think of the, 
I think it was a Peter, Paul and Mary song, but it might've been another um, Pete Seeger or somebody, where have all the flowers gone? I always say, where have all the scientists gone? And I've, I've gotten into brutal arguments with people. You know, some people will go, well, you know, and I go, no, I don't know. I mean, do you believe rats and mice are animals? Uh-huh. And do you know the Animal Welfare Act? Uh-huh. And have you ever questioned it? No. And that's the end of the conversation. <laughs> I mean, why haven't you questioned it? So what are rats supposed to be? Like, well, are they inanimate objects? Are they, like, what, how, if they're not animals, what does this act say they are? Well, you're, I mean, your questions are great, Mark, because these are the kinds of questions that six-year-olds ask. Well, I have a pet mouse. I have a pet rat, you know, and, 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 and they're an animal, right? They're not a plant, are they? No, they're not bacteria. No. Um, well, who are they? And they ignore you. I mean, one of the things I know what happens in Canada, it happens in the United States, it happens across the world, is one of the best mechanisms by people who harm animals, many of whom like to. I mean, people argue with me, but there's, there's people out there, I think, who get a real charge out of harming animals. Um, they just ignore you. And I don't know this since I don't, I'm, I'm not, I haven't really read much recently, um, or maybe this week, but I think the Ontario Federation of Agriculture report and the material I've written and Camilla's written and others has really had an impact widely. I've had a good number of emails from Canadians who had no idea what was going on. I mean, they just, they just don't know. So what are, or who, rather than what, are mice and rats? They're non-human animals. Thank you. What versus who is something that I've been fascinated by. And when I finished my book, the original title of it was The Killer Whale, That Changed the World. I, I, sent, I sent it to Eric Hoyt and he said, you know what, I think you could do some, he said, I think you could make more of a change with this book if you just change that pronoun. And yeah, I remember I suggested it to you too. And yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, you suggested it as well because you got the original draft when you're reading it. Reading it. Yeah. And I mean, the publisher had done the catalog and I went back and made this passionate argument saying, can we please change it from that to who? And I will always love my publisher for being willing to make that shift after putting out all the press information. And yeah, then I, I, went, remember that. Yeah, and I went through the entire book and changed all of the thoughts. And honestly, there was part of me going, I didn't even know I was allowed to do that. Right? I mean, journalistic <laughs> background, I'm like, can I just do this? And, and in a lot of ways, I feel like that was the biggest ripple, I think, the, the uh, book made in some ways with people just going, who? You're calling the killer whale a who? And I, I've talked to Dr. Lori Marino, who, again, is just like, it's always a who, it's none of that. And yeah. I'm going, which animals do you apply that to? And you and Dr. Marino seem to go, all of them. All of them. There's nothing lost. I mean, I mean, there's just nothing lost. I mean, that's why I always say the animal, I always use who, not that, or which, or it. And one of the things that I've been doing for a good number of years, and it came to me mid-talk, 10 or 15 years ago, 
that it's a matter of who we eat, not what we eat. So it's who's for dinner, not what's for dinner. I don't do it to be, you know, an ass. I do it because you're eating a who. And I think that it's a, it's a, it's a game changer. And I've got a whole bunch of stories, but one that I've told a number of times is I gave a talk in Vienna. And during my talk, I was talking about meal plans and laboratory work and keeping animals in aquariums and slaughterhouses and other prisons. And I said, and it's a matter of who you eat, not what you eat. And there was a pause in the audience. And a year later or so, five women who were at the talk um, wrote me and said that they went vegetarian and some vegan because of that. It actually just stopped them in their track. It's the animals who we eat, the animals who we keep in cages, the animals who we keep in aquariums, et cetera, et cetera, the animals who we hunt or who, um, you know, we imprison. And so, so, so words matter. <laughs> and, and Lori Marino is right on the mark there. Yeah. Well, it's funny. I have no scientific background whatsoever. People think I'm kidding about this. The last science class I took was chemistry 11 in high school. And I got <laughs> what used to be known as a conditional pass. And the yes. condition was that I never set foot in another science classroom again for as long as I live. <laughs> because I was uh, kind of a smart ass in, in all classes. But in science class, that was really unacceptable. And yep. I remember we had some project where I w we were asked, how do you know that a candle is not alive? And you were supposed to give answers about respiration or whatever. And I said, because it doesn't scream when you light it on fire. And I love that answer. I would have given you an A plus. <laughs> thank you. My science teacher gave me a big scowl and was like, get out of my classroom. And, wow. uh, so, and, uh, so I've got no science background. So when I was working on the book about, about Moby Doll and, and whales, I assumed there was science behind certain things. And one of them was, I wanted to know why orcas didn't have rights. And I assumed that there'd be a, a really good sciencey reason that showed why humans were different, more evolved, whatever, than other animals. And so I actually hired master students because I didn't want to embarrass myself. I mean, I was talking to global experts on orcas and I thought, I can't ask them these dumb questions where I'm going, so why don't orcas have rights? And I thought, well, <laughs> you should know that. They don't, you know, humans are more evolved because of X. And yeah. I kept being told, well, because only humans use tools. No. No, oh, yeah, yeah. And, and all of these different things just fell down. And I was shocked when I just went, no, no, tell me. Like, I, I assume there's a reason. And there doesn't seem to be one. So can you walk me through how that, how we got there and why we got there? Well, I mean, I think a lot of it is just back to Descartes and, you know, early thinkers that animals are machines, unfeeling machines, and the pain they feel is from the gears that are crushing one another when you actually cause them pain. Um, I think it's, a, you know, and I've written a lot, it's a, it's a real double standard because the data 
have been around for a long time about you know rich and deep cognitive and emotional and even moral lives of non-human animals but it's easy to deny when you're causing them pain and suffering so for some people it's just an escape um the denial is an escape mechanism i know i'm doing horrible things so i'll just make up a story that says they don't really feel things um i mean the one thing i'll say now it's not how smart animals are it's whether they can feel it's the old jeremy bentham thing it's not whether they can talk or think it's whether they can suffer the other is just human exceptionalism religion or various religions have really played a role in that that we are exceptional we're above and separate from other human other animals because humans are animals and so Above and separate means that we're better than them, we're more valuable than them, we're smarter than them, we're more sentient than them. I mean, the whole litany of just pure junk. But, you know, people are becoming much more aware today. I mean, due to your work, due to your book, due to a lot of people who are writing and um, giving talks for the masses who are really, really interested in this, you know. Um, the other thing is that people don't realize, they don't realize how hypocritical they are, you know, because I've had people talk about how they love their dog and they love their companion animals, same mammalian, and then all of a sudden, you know, just behave as if they're totally unfazed by factory farming, zoos, laboratory research, circuses, rodeos, and other horror stories like that. And so that's why I always say, well, Tell me more about your dog. And, and we, ha we get into good discussions because I think of using um, or having dogs serve as, I call them gateway species for bridging the empathy gap. So if your dog is a thinking, feeling, sentient being, why isn't a cow? The reason I, I use cow, pig, rather than say chimpanzee or elephant or wolf or coyote is because the, some people will say, well, you know, dogs, are human inventions. They are. Artifacts, somewhat they are. And so are cows. But so they'll say, well, you know, these animals wouldn't, I mean, this is just the stupidest thing. They'll say, well, these animals wouldn't have existed without us. And while that might be true, <laughs> it doesn't mean that they're machines. So I think that um, that's how it came about. Human exceptionalism, uh, people really honestly believe they don't think or feel. And, and once again, you know, I'm coming back to the discussion of the Federal Animal Welfare Act in the United States and the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. People go, people don't really think that way. And I'm going, well, here's two basically national level takes on animals that discount their cognitive and emotional lives. The other thing that really threw me when I was doing my research and, and diving into the world of whales was the idea that anthropomorphism was a sin. There was a, there's a great term that I came across from uh, Franz Duval, anthropodenial. I've become obsessed with the idea of anthropodenial because that makes sense to me. I don't understand how, why we go to such great lengths and jump through all these linguistic hoops to pretend that everything animals do is alien from us. Yeah, I, I mean, years ago I decided I'm never gonna really, and I don't, and haven't recently, 
even thought about the notion of anthropomorphism, no less that it's a, that it's a disease or that the ill of anthropomorphism. You know, if you do it correctly, you need to use the language with which you have some kind of competency. And if you do it correctly, then there's only one way to describe what other animals are feeling. And research, once again, has shown all the way down or up to neuroimaging that the same parts of a lot of mammalian brains fire when they're feeling the same emotions as we are. So people say, well, maybe we should call non-human animal emotions something else. And I'm going, why? And I mean, that's a very dangerous move. You know, um, I'm not saying that rat joy is the same as human joy or chimpanzee joy. They all have their species typical joy, grief, sorrow, embarrassment, jealousy, guilt, and other emotions. But what I'm saying is that these words really apply across the species. So <laughs> when people want to get into discussions about anthropomorphism, that's time to go have a beer and just let them go off into left field about things. I, it's, it's a total waste of time for me. I mean, an utter waste of time. Well, when Tahlequah was carrying her dead daughter for, mm -hmm. for 17 days, mm -hmm. I felt, I, I saw you wrote about this, I wrote about this, I was floored by the, the links, the, the, again, the linguistic hoops people jump through to avoid ah. calling that grief. And there was yeah. one time magazine did a piece called she appeared to be grieving oh. and I'm going, yeah. okay, I've gone to funerals where humans have appeared to be grieving. I knew they were happy. The person was dead. She was grieving and it was, yeah. it floored me to see people dance around that word when it was so obvious to yeah. the world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the article I write, wrote was there was no doubt that she was grieving. And then, of course, the naysayers would say, well, how do you know that? And I go, I know it. That's all. I know it. She was behaving as a human would behave. And there's no reason to deny the, those emotions to, you know, say, cetaceans. I mean, other animals, of course, as well. So if you, not, I don't mean you, but if someone thinks that she was acting only as if she were grieving, or when dogs play, they're only acting as if they're having pleasure and fun, be my guest. I'm done with that. They are having pleasure and fun. They are enjoying themselves. Animals don't seek out activities that they don't enjoy, including human animals. And there's no reason to say that she didn't miss and, and was not grieving for her baby. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm a scientist and I'm not anti-science, but I'm over that kind of debate. It's the same kind of argument, Mark, that comes back to the Federation, the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. They say, where are the data? You give them the data and then they make the stupidest comments you could ever read. I mean, these were, these were among the stupidest, most inane, ludicrous, uninformed comments I have read in ages. Because some people will say, well, we don't really think they feel like humans, not there are no data. I mean, so anyway, don't look, you can get me ranting on this stuff, but that kind of stuff is just junk science and doesn't deserve any attention other than to bring attention to how inane it is and hope that 
in the future, they will change their ways and there will be more protections for, say, farmed animals. Okay, since, we, since we've moved on to whales for a moment, and you, you know that's my thing, can you talk about some of the, the things that you've found out in, in your work around cetaceans? And not just captives, but also wild cetaceans. You know, I've never, the only cetaceans I've ever seen, of, um, I believe this is true, are killer whales in Antarctica. I mean, I was doing research on the Delhi penguins at a place called Cape Crozier on Ross Island in Antarctica years ago before there were tourists in there. I mean, we, we were remote. So the only actual observations I have of wild cetaceans are killer whales hunting Adelie penguins. I, I, the word overwhelmed is, is, is an, uh, the understatement of the year by the magnificence of these orcas. I mean, you just look at them and you know they're sentient beings, you know there's ample information now that they hunt in coordinated packs like wolves. But you just look at these, these animals and they are, I, I can't think of a word, I was overwhelmed by just seeing wild orcas. I've never been to any of the jails like Vancouver Aquarium, for example. I, I, I can't go to them. I mean, I just, they would, it would break my heart. So I can't say anything more other than the majesty of the orcas who I saw in Antarctica, who were really wild. You know what I mean? They, they were, at the time, there were no boats. There were, I mean, they were really wild animals and their behavior wasn't being affected much, if at all, by humans. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Oh yeah, I mean, we were on the, we were above the Cape Crozier Adelie penguin rookery. And you know, that old joke, I'm not gonna be the first penguin who jumps in the water. And you see, you know, wild Adelie penguins hovering at the edge of like either an ice flow or where the water hits the sand along the beach. And they're watching out for leopard seals who gulp up Adelie penguins as appetizers. And I looked out and I could see the black and white silhouette of an orca. And I just was, I mean, really, I just, I was like, and you know, my field, um, there were two of us in the field that day, but there were four of us at this really remote station said, no, no, you got to focus because we really need to collect these data on the penguins. And, and, and we did, of course, but I, I was, it was marvelous. I mean, it was almost like the first time I saw elephants in Africa. I was out in the field with Ian Douglas Hamilton in the Samburu National Reserve in northern Kenya, and I had never seen a wild elephant. And all of a sudden, you know, turn a corner and there's this herd of elephants looking at us, and you just go speechless. I mean, just, are you kidding me? <laughs> nice. There's something to me about being in their presence that is, it's awe-inspiring. One of my gigs used to be interviewing movie stars. So I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people with presence. Mm -hmm. Orcas have that presence. There's this, there's this majesty around them when you, mm -hmm. when you get close. Yeah, that's exactly it. Their presence, although they were, they could have easily been a kilometer away, but just, and, and knowing they were out there, just, oh, it was just such a good feeling, you know? I mean, I, you know, I wish the world would have evolved that workers could be vegans, but they're not. And I know they eat penguins and seals and other animals, and that's, 
you know, when I say that's the way it is, I don't mean it in a dismissive way, but there are predators and prey, and that's how the world evolved. And predators and prey are amazing beings who have evolved amazing behavioral adaptations to their lifestyle and their meal plans. But you're right. And the elephant situation was uh, remarkable because we were in a Land Rover and, you know, there the elephants were literally maybe five meters away. It wasn't like they were down the slope of a brookery out in the water. And really, I, I remember I said, geez, Ian. <laughs> and Ian, you know, the wonderful man and brilliant researcher he is, just said, amazing, isn't it? And then I said, yeah. And then, um, you know, he went on to, to name about 80 of them who were out there knew every, you know, knew every individual, the genealogy of the individuals. And, and having done field work on, you know, coyotes and wolves, I, I know about family groups of animals. I know that they form tight bonds. And I know there are mothers and fathers and children and aunts and uncles. But it was the sheer size of the elephants, you know. And I remember looking at a female, an adult female, who was huge. And I think Ian said, wait till you see the big males, and all of a sudden this huge mammoth appears and almost blocks out the sun and makes some of the females look like midgets or some of the younger males look like midgets. And the, the presence, you're right. No, and you know, the other thing really, Mark, was with the orcas and the elephants and other animals who I've met is you know how smart they are, you know how emotional they are, you know they have very active brains, and they're looking at you like you're looking at them. And I, re I remember distinctly um, with the elephants and other animals, land animals I've met, you know, how these, all these elephants knew Ian and his field workers and they didn't know me. And they'd come over and investigate me with their trunks because their trunks are in their, you know, basically their noses. Um, and you just sit there thinking, I mean, I remember sitting there like this with my eyes closed looking down. And Ian, I remember saying something like, it's all okay, isn't it? And, and his response was, yeah, I think so. And it was like, I think so? I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you don't know. After I overcame my fear, because I was afraid, it was just the most wonderful, um, one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had. And somebody said, well, would you have liked to have been that close and investigated by the orcas? And I went, no. <laughs> Simple. <laughs> And they said, why? And I said, well, orcas are natural born predators and elephants are. And, and yeah, I went through the whole litany. But no, no, I, I felt I was really happy to see the orca from the distance. Now, one of the things that I've become kind of obsessed with, and my, this is where my editor actually had to pull me back on, on the book. She went, Moby Doll's dead. You have to finish the book now. And I went down this big rabbit hole on the idea of personhood because I found it fascinating that in some places apes have rights in some places rivers have rights and mm -hmm. it it occurred to me that if orcas were declared non-human persons we couldn't mess with their habitat and this mm -hmm. would th like this might be the legal way forward in terms of helping orcas and mm -hmm. other animals mm -hmm. so can you talk about your thoughts on person because i know you've written extensively about it yeah, I mean, we, we've been talking, in some of the discussion we've had, we've been talking around the issue of personhood, you know, animals as 
being thinking, feeling, autonomous beings, or you know, animals, individuals who have a life and you will a right to live uh, lives in peace and safety, you know, absent human harm and suffering and killing. Um, so yeah, I mean, Stephen Wise um, in um, non-human rights program in um, in the United States has been working on this tirelessly. He and his team for decades to get um, non-human primates, at least, you know, recognized as persons. I mean, a lot of it stems from the fact that in the legal systems across the world, animals are not seen as subjects of a life, they're seen as objects. And if you, if you call an individual a person, like a human being, person, then you're recognizing them, recognizing them as a subject of a life, and you're recognizing that they have certain cognitive and emotional attributes, and that confers on them certain rights or privileges, and which means that they're it would it's wrong and and, and and illegal. You know, there's the twist that it that you're breaking a law if you harm them, um, and so you know that's my understanding, and you know I think the animals who are the best candidates, you know, in the within the legal system. You know, people go to great apes, chimpanzees, because they're our close relatives. And I know there's been discussions of orcas and you know cetaceans who are clearly bright social animals with very rich and deep emotional lives. And 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 so people identify with say the great apes and a lot of cetaceans. And you know, not because I studied, I've been studying dogs for decades. But dogs are another good candidate because people are familiar with them. And you know, I've written a bit about it and I've had discussions about, you know, dogs as persons, dogs as being good candidates for being called person persons and for being granted legal personhood, for example. And with some people, you know, it's a no-brainer and it goes far, and other people just sort of write you off as if you're a moron. But um but I know Lori Marino and a lot of, you know, cetacianologists, if you will, um, you know, have been working on this as well. Um, it's a long time. I think it's going to be a long time coming. That's just my honest feeling. I mean, not that the work isn't important, but Steve Wise is as good an example as anybody and, and his team of, um, you know, workers as, as dedicated 24-7 workers on this issue people are afraid i mean they really are you know it's sort of it's it's to me it's very much alike that legal systems say that non-human animals are objects for example legal systems say that you can't murder a non-human animal that the word murder only applies to human animals and legal systems say the word person only applies to human individuals so you're you're trying to dismantle long lasting and 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 very well accepted legal i guess you'd say legal standards if you will but i tell people don't give up i mean the minute you give up you're feeding into the people who want you to give up and then you're done <laughs> you might as well just go home so how did you get into animals in the first place what what how did this become your life I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and 
at the time I was a, as a kid, everybody had their requisite goldfish. And so I had a goldfish or two living in an aquarium and I used to talk to them. Um, and I used to talk to all the, the dogs, the cats, the squirrels and birds in my neighborhood in Brooklyn. I mean, there was, there were no, I mean, you could say that, you know, the birds and the insects and the squirrels were wild animals, but they're, you know, urban animals. Um, it was just natural to me. I, I, I can't think of, I mean, I honestly can't think of any other way to say it. And I wrote a book called Minding Animals, um, came out about 18 years ago. And my folks always used to say that I minded animals. And what they meant by that was that I attributed rich, rich and deep emotional lives to animals and I minded them by taking care of them. I can't say more than that because I don't know, but I grew up in a home, like I said before, where my mom was very compassionate and empathic and, you know, nonviolent home. And that basically, I think, just spilled over to this kind of general feeling um, for non-human animals. My mom and my friend Alice are huge, huge fans of all of your work around dogs. So I, I wanted to ask a bit about that, or I, but also, do you, who was your first dog? Who was the first dog that was part of your life? It was a big Malamute named Moses. I didn't live with a dog until I was in grad school. I mean, I mean, for a lot of reasons. My grandparents, who were all Russian immigrants decades ago, had dogs and cats. Um, I didn't. My mom apparently had been bitten by a dog when she was young. and she was afraid of them. It wasn't like she disliked them. But um, I started doing some research on dogs, the development of behavior, and there was a Malamute who needed a home. So he, Moses was my first dog. Um, <laughs> and then there's just been a whole line of, you know, different dogs. And when I lived in the mountains, which I did for years outside of Boulder, I mean, it I, it was a dog's world. I mean, they rarely had collars, almost never leashes. They could run free. They, there were black bears and cougars and other predators. And um, when I moved up, when I moved up there, there were only three homes on a big mountainside. Then there were six or seven, and every house had a dog. And they used to all come down to my house and hang out because I'd give them treats. And I would take a break when I wasn't down at the university and I would bury food around and enrich their lives and they would spend hours looking for food, little, I mean, tiny little pieces of like a tree buried um, and stuff like that. So that Moses was my first dog, although I, I had contact with a lot of dogs before Moses came into my life. You see, I wondered if you had a dog who was sort of a teacher because, of, because you learned so much from animals. I, I actually think that the animals who I met when I was a kid were my teachers and also I was imprinted on them. I really do. I mean, I used to just talk to all the animals in the neighborhood and people, my, I, I think my mom at one time later in life told me that my neighbors, or the, I mean, my neighbors, their neighbors thought I was a, wacky, a wacko, that I would be just out there talking to the squirrels. Just seemed natural. I mean, it just, and, and my parents didn't, you know, write me off as being a wacko. They, my, my parents were accepting of it. The recent interview you did where you were sort of translating dog, you, you, did a, you were translating different, oh. uh, different tail wags, things like that. And 
uh, as somebody whose life is ruled by cats, I'm curious, do you have any interesting thoughts on cats and how cats communicate? I do, and I love cats. I am randomly allergic to cats. I'm allergic to more cats than I am. I'm I mean, the number of cats to whom I'm allergic is really high. There's a few who I probably could live with. And so I've never lived with a cat just because I never wanted to get in that situation of having a cat and just, just you know, discovering that I was allergic and, and bad allergies, you know, not, not just like, Oh, you know, put the cat out or something like that. And um, so, Oh, I think cats are fascinating. I've, I've always thought that that was a hole in my life because just a couple of days ago and where I live now, and when I was out on a bike ride in the country, in fact, just two days ago, we were riding our bikes on dirt roads north of Boulder, really rural. And there were some cats out. And I know people were going to say, oh, they were probably hunting mice. Oh, they were killing birds. And maybe they were. And I'm not saying that in a dismissive way. But watching these cats, I just had to stop and watch them. You know, they they're just they're, they're the wildness that they were kind of um, exhibiting. The thing that I find a little disappointing is that there are more studies of cats and I don't mean invasive studies, I mean, you know, cat ethology, if you will, um, but there's still not a lot. And I've gotten emails from people saying, why do you keep writing about dogs? You don't like cats. And I always say to people, don't judge me. If you want to know if I like cats, ask me. And I do like cats. It's just I know a lot more about dogs. <laughs> so, Yeah, I've had cats because they've adopted me. I oh, was, I believe I, that. I was violently allergic to cats and i had a cat who just was like no i live with you so you'd better deal like who just would break into my house <laughs> and and she had a litter of cats on my bedroom floor and just went and they, they're yours they're yours i was just gonna say um yeah when i lived in the mountains there were some cats on the road and and unfortunately the people who had them were were kind of pretty irresponsible because in all honesty, after a couple of years, there wasn't one left. They got hit by cars or a number of them um, undoubtedly got taken by mountain lions, cougars. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that, but I find them, I find them fascinating. And um, I just, like I said, I just, I just didn't want to get in a situation where I'd be living with an animal who I really couldn't live with, if you will. And, you know, I, I, when I visited people, I'm willing to take some antihistamines or whatever, but it's a pretty bad allergy. Um, so my loss. <laughs> now, you mentioned Babe a little while ago. Is there a book or a movie or anything that ever really inspired you or, or changed you? Um, not, not a single movie or book, really. A lot of my knowledge came from just hanging out um, with other animals. When we lived on, when we moved from Brooklyn to the South Shore of Long Island, and it was still very rural then, there was a, a woods across the street from my house, and I would just go out there and just watch all the birds, and there were mice and rats and squirrels, and some dogs from neighborhoods would come through. So a lot of, a lot of my knowledge just came from just sitting out there and watching, which is something I love to do. I mean, in, in all the field work I've done all over, I'm just happy to just sit and watch animals. <laughs> it's just, you know, they don't always do what you want them to do. In fact, 
they don't always they don't often do anything for you know hours or days on end and that's just part of who they are so um yeah i mean i was i was really influenced by jane goodall's work early on i mean before i knew her and became a friend of hers because i always named the animals and never hesitated to say they had personalities and and i got i got reprimanded when i was writing up my thesis and papers by some some of my committee members not my mentor my mentor michael fox was really a pioneer along with jane in terms of naming animals and knowing they had personalities yeah not 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 much i mean just watching animals and just and to this minute literally i mean almost this second being floored by the diversity of life on the planet i mean i just i am addicted to and you know shows like planet earth and you know um frozen earth and blue planet and all the bbc movies and among others i'm i'm addicted to them and i just i just kind of look at them and i go how can how how can there be anybody who isn't shocked by the diversity of life on this planet all basically coming from the same basic chemicals you know and all the adaptations they show i mean really and i've been doing this for a really long time and last week there was a show about snake locomotion and how sidewinder sidewinders go up these sandy hills and leave these beautiful marks and then they showed some x-rays of their locomotion and i'm i, I just i'm floored <laughs> how did how did this all evolve so i'm i'm a pretty easy sell on um good good you know non-invasive nature films if you will how did you connect with jane goodall because you've done so much work with her and you do so much work with her you know i through common interest um she's come to boulder a lot and we have a common friend in boulder and she usually stays at their house and years ago when she was married to hugo van lewick he stayed with me in st louis missouri he was traveling so i became you know friendly with him when he and when he was married to jane um and you know just correspondence but but originally it just happened when she was visiting boulder and i was doing the first edition of my encyclopedia of animal rights and animal welfare i asked if she would write the forward for it and she said she would and just i mean totally coincidentally she was staying with a, a we had a common friend and i did not know this so i would hang out with her up at his house in another another canyon just north of where i live and um just shared interests you know and then you know we did a lot of work together and we wrote the 10 trusts together and um and i i still to this day work um I, I guess she sometimes calls me a roaming ambassador for her Roots and Shoots program. And I've been teaching a course at the Boulder County Jail on animal behavior and conservation for almost 20 years, give or take, as part of the Roots and Shoots program. Now, how did, can you talk about the work that you've been doing in jail? Because that sounds fascinating. And I love that you've been doing it for so long. Jane and I were talking once when she was in Boulder and there, there was some programs Roots and shoots programs in some prisons and jails. I mean, they're really basically the same thing, um, same types of places, but people typically stay longer in prisons and jails. And I don't know, we just talked and I said, maybe I should teach a course on animal behavior and conservation at the Boulder County Jail. So I suggested to do it. And the woman running the program laughed. She said, you want to do what? 
And she said, well, come on in, let's talk. Cause you know, you've got to be vetted and you know, you, it's not easy getting a job and you know, if you, or you know, not, it wasn't a full-time job, even volunteering. And the bottom line was that I said, I think I can teach these, these um, the inmates about animals and how they cooperate and how they resolve conflicts nonviolently, which is true. I mean, of course they fight, but most animals have very nonviolent ways of um, resolving conflicts. And so I just started teaching it, talking about it, talking about animals, showing videos. I've got closet fulls of DVDs of, you know, lots of different animal, animals, animal behavior, animal ecology. And the guys were really receptive and they started doing artwork. Some of their artwork has won awards nationally. They've, they write essays. Um, the birthday book we gave to Jane when she turned 80 has some essays in um, it from some of the inmates. Um, and I still do it. I haven't been there in a couple of months because of the COVID-19 situation, but I still go by there and drop videos off and collect essays if they do any and, and artwork. Um, so, I mean, that's basically it. I love it. It's, it's, it's a learning experience and I've really learned a lot about myself. I've learned a lot about teaching. Um, I, I consider myself a very liberal thinker and I've learned a lot about marginalized people. I, I've learned a lot. I, I, I really have. And, they re and the, the guys really like the course. The inmates, the, my, I call them my students. I mean, they are inmates, um, but I, my students, you know, range from petty crimes to murder. I mean, they've, some of them have done some really bad things, if you will. I always feel safe with them. I respect them for who they are, and animals are the glue. I, that's what I always say, that they're the glue for drawing us together, because a lot of these guys, when they talk about, you know, who their best friends were when they were growing up, some of them in horrific situations, the animals didn't judge them and trusted them, and, and that's huge. And they feel that way for me. I trust them. I don't judge them. I often say if I had been raised in the way a lot of them had been raised, I'd be there too. I, really, I, I mean that from my heart. I don't mean that in any superficial way. And, and I run into them around Boulder and they're out and we have great chats. Um, so I'm going to keep doing it. I, 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 I mean, of course, for a lot of reasons, I hope this pandemic disappears really fast, but it's not going to. So it's going to be a while before I go back, but I still have contact with him through the um, commander. And so I drop films off and he tells me about all the guys in the class and Jane sends him notes of hello. Um, she's been really, I mean, really supportive of um, the class and will send them emails. And one, one year they all wrote to her and she sent each of them an individualized postcard. And I mean, it, I, I, and she visited the jail four and a half years ago. Wow. And it, it was supposed to be like an hour and a half visit. And we were there all morning. And she loved it. And they loved her. So, now, she, she talks a lot about hope. What gives you hope? Seeing successes. But like I said before, what gives me hope is that, that there are good things happening. And I always say without hope, you're screwed. I mean, you're done. I mean, if you really believe that everything you're doing has no potential benefits or, and means that things are hopeless, then they will be hopeless. I mean, I believe in that self-fulfilling prophecy. So would I like to see more done? Oh yeah, I'd like to see animals legally recognized as persons. 
I'd like to see factory farms closed down. I'd like to see the world be vegan. I'd like to see a peaceful world, blah, 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 blah. And maybe we will evolve there, really. I mean, I think in the future we are going to have to get there or we will be done. I mean, I, re I really mean that. And um, that we, we can't continue to live the way we are now with the very perverted and damaging relationships we have with other animals in nature. It's, 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 I hate the word sustainable in the sense that it's overused, but that is not a sustainable lifestyle. So um, that's where my hope is. And then every now and again, you know, I just get emails or I run into people and they say, wow, you know, I've really made this change in my life for the better. I'm pleased when they say it's because of something I said or wrote, but it, it's not necessarily that. Obviously, there's a lot of really, really good people working in the animal protection movement. So I just am looking for little things here and there, just little things that are energy given. And um, every now and again, talking with Jane and other people who are doing this work is really motivating. And do you see hope for non-human animals during this pandemic? I think it's, it's it, to me, somebody asked me that question a couple of days ago. So since it's only a couple of days ago, it, it's just too early to know. I mean, a lot of my friends um, around Boulder, it's not a great example because there are bears who walk through Boulder and cougars and bobcats and red foxes. But, you know, there's places where animals, non-human animals are coming into towns now because there's no traffic and there's no people. So I, here's what I would like to believe. And I know that I'm kind of, it's kind of low hanging fruit. I would like to believe that I'm not going to say when the pandemic is over, because I think it's going to be a long time and it may never, the effects of it may never be over. I mean, it may be a long time. I would like to believe that as it eases off and it ends, people will realize the importance of connecting to other animals and to nature. I, I really do. I just, it, it makes them feel better. I mean, there's a whole literature on that. Once again, around Boulder, we're seeing people who are riding their bikes and hiking and running and doing things that they never did before because they're not working. And we're hoping that, that, that the experience they have out in nature will spill over into their, if you will, post-pandemic life. So I don't know. And I just wanted to ask one more thing, and I know it's going back to where we started, which is your approach to positive messaging. And there was something that I heard, I've heard you say a few times, talking about criticizing positions, not people. So can you just talk a little bit about the strategy for changing people's hearts and minds without attacking them? Well, I always say that good people can do bad things. So that people who abuse animals are not necessarily bad people. Sometimes people give me grief about it, but, but, uh, but what I really mean is we've all done or said things that we wish we hadn't. Um, and we hope that we've learned from this, you know, these practices. Um, but you don't get anywhere attacking a person. You immediately put them on the defensive and you might as well go home. So I can agree to disagree if it were with you and just say, fine, here's my view. That's your view. You're incorrigible. I'm not going to change you. You're not going to change me. Let's go. Because we don't have enough time, energy, and money to waste on people who are not going to change. And there are people who want to just waste your time 
you know, it's, it's almost like the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. They're, it's a waste of time. I mean, I was happy to write that article, but it's a waste of time because anybody who says that animals don't think or feel, it's a waste of time trying to ch change their minds. But they want you to try to change their minds because then you're not doing work in another avenue that will help non-human animals. So I, you don't get anywhere. And my work in, in um, the jail has taught me that you don't criticize people you look at what they've done in their position and you try to change their behavior through looking at what they've done or not done. And labeling people as bad doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, there's plenty of bad, there's probably plenty of bad people and I'm not going political on this kind of stuff at all, but it doesn't get, it doesn't get me anywhere. So I'd rather focus on the positive. I'd rather focus on people who are open to change. I, 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 don't mind having, I don't mind having discussions and debates with people, even if I don't agree with them, if they're nice to me and I will be nice to them. So that, that's what I really, really mean. But labeling people just, it doesn't, get, for me personally, it doesn't get me anywhere. If I don't agree with you, I don't have to talk to you. I mean, you know, I, mean, I don't. And, and, and if you say I'm open to change and I'm open to changing my views, how about you? Um, no, there are certain things I'm not open to changing. I'm not going to change my meal plan. I'm not going to change my non-killing attitude towards non-human animals. I'm, I'm not going to change that. So if that closes the door for me to talk to somebody, that's fine. But those are certain, those are certain practices or bumper stickers that are immutable for me right now. Fantastic. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you for all that you do. Well, thank you. God, there's a lot going on, isn't there? <laughs> no, I appreciate that. I mean, you know, and, and the other thing I'd say is, you know, no one's perfect. And the minute people start thinking they're perfect, we're done. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks again for checking out Scanna during this bizarre period of human hibernation. Scanna is produced in Saanich, BC, traditional territories of the Wasanich, Songhees, and Esquimalt peoples. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join Scanna's pod at patreon.com. Sponsors for this episode include Chantel Shawnee Surratt, Simon McNear, Darren Laren Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Joan Watterson, Solomon Siegel, and Yosef Wask. If you like what we're up to, please subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter. Check out our show notes at scanna.org and our Scanna magazine on Medium. Follow us on social media. Share the show with your friends. Heck, share it with strangers. Everyone has plenty of time to listen these days. If the show doesn't work for you, I'm Mike Berbiglia, and this is Working It Out. Actually, that's a really good show. Check out his interview with Hannah Gatsby. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Benue. Associate producer and audio engineer Isabella Almashi. Audio engineer and social media Asia Radigan. Research Maeve Milligan and Brian Murphy. And web wizard Katie Brown. We've also had all sorts of help lately behind the scenes from Cole Flick-Bellis, Joanne Hwan, Kate Waring-Oxanen, and Thane Harden. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. Now, since we've decided to experiment with talking about our Patreon sponsors at the end of our episode... I wanted to finish with a song by one of my favorite Canadian bands, a band 
I support on Patreon. This is Whitehorse with Fade Into You. Smiles come 